starting a band and being in a band is really hard, but it's also really good training for um, getting along with people in a business environment. Because think about it, you know, you, you all have your specialty, you all have a passion, and you all need to have a shared vision to get where you want to go to, and people disagree, you know? And you know that you need those people as much as they need you to make the music work, and you're going to have to manage those egos and those personalities. And, you know, it's great training for um, as you work your way up an organization, actually. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Hopefully you survived your holiday madness and are back in the grind, and 2019 is off to a good start. We're off to a good start here at A New Angle and excited about today's guest, Kevin Cohane. Kevin Cohane is a close collaborator and dear friend. He works as the director of brand and talent over at Partners Creative, a prominent marketing and communications firm here in town that does work on an international scale. And Kevin is a big part of that work. I got to pick his brain about the very things that I teach and do research on here at the University of Montana. So it was a super fun and fulfilling conversation, and I deeply respect Kevin's philosophy about all things brand. Kevin is also a musician. His band, Catnip, has put out two albums in the last couple of years, and we talk all about that project as well. It was a wide-ranging conversation, a lot of fun, and I'm excited to bring it to you right now. All right, so we're here today with Kevin Cohane. Kevin. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Very nice to be here. So we go back a couple of years. We collaborated um, on the rebranding project for Lincoln County and uh, a little bit of work on the Deloitte website, if I recall. But you're over at Partners Creative, um, but kind of, you know, relatively new to the community in the sense, what, four or five years now? Yeah, about four years. I think you're right. But what what really interested me, or in, one of the things that interests me about you, is the the winding path that you took, sort of in and out of the states and back. Um, tell us a little bit about the the, the path you've taken. I think the your most most recent post before Missoula was London, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, I think when I I grew up in Colorado, and I always had an interest in the broader world, and I always wanted to travel and. I had the opportunity pretty early in my career, you know, after I had studied basically journalism and international studies, I had the opportunity with a consulting firm that made an acquisition to go and start um, integrating a new company in Mm -hmm. Australia and start the communication practice. And so um, I'd been kind of holding down the fort at the consultancy I worked uh, in in Denver. Uh Um, My boss had left and I had that opportunity to kind of hold the fort and basically made a job for myself and, you know, didn't have to hire anybody. But anyway, the opportunity to travel came up and I jumped on it. I spent a couple of years in Australia. I worked mainly in kind of human capital consulting sure. um, and, and marketing of, of the agency or the consultancy. And, um, you know, then ended up um, moving to Sweden for about a year. I lived in Stockholm and worked for a consulting firm there. Different consulting firm. Yeah, a different a different consulting firm, um, AT Carney. Okay, you might have heard of their spinoff of McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know mainly because I mean I speak a little bit of Swedish, but mainly for language reasons, I ended up in London, and I'd never planned on really going to London, um, but ended up there and stayed there for about fifteen years. And I guess what's interesting about that journey I've taken was was that. It's really interesting when you immerse yourself and don't just visit another culture for like a week or three months or even six months. I think it takes about a year to really kind of start feeling like you're a part of it. Okay. And learning how different cultures and different people have different perspectives on things and how things work and what's right and wrong or good or cool or interesting or how you eat dinner, when when you serve salad with a meal, all these silly little things, but they kind of add up and they do change you and they change your perspective. And I think... 
to me, one of the most interesting things about having lived outside the U.S. for 17 years was that I, I started looking at it at the U.S. as an outsider looks at it, not as an American looks at it. Okay. So, you know, watching the BBC News, to me, that no longer felt like I'm listening to people with British accents talking about world events. You know, I was just... That was your news. Exactly. That was my news. And particularly visiting the U.S. and coming back, I started to feel more and more like, um, you know... I don't know. Like an outsider of sorts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, what a... What an incredible 17 years to sort of have that shift in perspective from an insider to an outsider. I mean, observing how our country's transformed in the last 17 years. I mean, I suppose you could take a, a, any sample of 17 years and there'd be a lot of change, but... Oh, yeah, well, 9-11. Yeah, yeah. I was in London, you know, the afternoon for me of 9-11, watching all of that unfold, and it was just amazing, you know, the, the outpouring of, of support and empathy that, you know, my boss just said, no, go to the pub, which, you know, that's a very British thing to do. Sure, yeah, He yeah. said, I don't want you here at work. There's a pub across the street. Go have a, a pint and watch it or do whatever you need to do. So I actually sat there, not like watching a game with a pint, but just the shock of it and, and watching it and being around people reacting to it was just cr- pretty incredible. What was your take on kind of, I mean, I don't want to get too into the weeds of, you know, your politics or, or any of that necessarily, but but seeing, you know, watching sort of how the United States was responding to to that event and changing politically and, and with its relationship with the world. I mean, what, what are you sort of, what thoughts are you thinking as like a, as a, as a, as an expat of a sort over in London? I think... My initial reaction was I actually think the U.S. acted with a lot more restraint than a lot of people thought they would. Now, granted, they did go and invade and got in Afghanistan and all that. But, I mean, there were people who literally thought, you know, George Bush was, you know, this infant with the, you know, how history repeats itself with the nuclear football, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. um, And they thought, oh, my God, he's going to nuke Baghdad or whatever. But, um, you know, I think in the short term, the U.S. acted was seen to act with a fair amount of restraint and then obviously got embroiled in all kinds of, mm-hmm. you know, conflicts that maybe it should or should not have. But, um, yeah, I don't know. So anyway, yeah, in London for that period of time and over some point you decided the call to come back to the States was, was one you wanted to answer. Yeah, I, I kind of, I had kind of accomplished probably some of the biggest things you can do in, in branding and um, employer branding. You yeah. Know, so I'd created, you know, really led the rebranding of a, one of the big four consultancies, of, you know, at the time a $28 billion company and working with this, the chief executive and working with the global executive team on that level of transformation and, mm-hmm. you know, really baking into that project a lot of the principles I had put into my book and that I believed in, which was, you know, things like putting purpose at the heart of your company, not seeing branding as just... Um, something that marketing does, but it's something you wire into the fabric of the organization. And, you know, it it has as much to do with marketing as it does with human resources and finance and supply chain, you know, really making your brand stand for something. Yeah. And and seeing that happen and how that organization has taken that forward and really continues to use it, you know, was, was, you know, a pretty amazing thing to be involved in. Um, And having done like employer brands for, you know, the world's leading soft drink company in, in, um, in Europe and then in China. Um, you know, so I'd kind of ticked some big boxes and at the time I was kind of at a professional crossroads and, um, the housing market in London had kind of exploded. And so we were sitting, frankly, on a a fair amount of, um, good equity and, you know, it was right around the time noises were being made about Brexit and my wife and I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to think about, you know, we talked about living in the U S and so we, um, yeah, so things were starting to kind of, people were squawking about Brexit, and that was starting to get on people's radar. Yeah, and it felt like maybe it's the right time for us to do that thing we talked about, which was maybe moving to the U.S. So I knew I didn't really want, I love New York and, and that sort of thing, but I didn't want to live there. Um, and I didn't want to do the West Coast, and I didn't want to go back to Colorado. So it kind of narrowed, it was a process of elimination. We came back to the kind of Pacific Northwest as an option. Sure. And, um, so we checked out kind of Seattle and Portland and Bend and Spokane and Missoula. And, um, 
Missoula was probably the most extreme choice. I would say. (laughs) Comparing to (laughs) London from, from, yeah. But in a way that appealed to us because Seattle would have probably felt just like another big city, you know, that we'd already experienced. And um, Portland, for all of its positive things just didn't it was it struck me as you know slightly too cool for me maybe in my golden years here but <laughs> i don't know about that you're pretty cool all right thank you but <laughs> we'll yeah. get to that part in the second half of the podcast. <laughs> uh but um the fact that missoula had a university here yeah on top draw. you know it's a big draw um and and also you know going on to talk about you know professionally I had intended on probably just freelancing, you know, and using uh-huh. my network of contacts and just kind of having to travel a lot. I mean, by that time in your career, you, you had a, a you know Rolodex large enough to to do that and sustain probably a fairly decent living that way. Yeah, yeah, and um, so you know that was really my option. But then I kind of stumbled across this agency here um, called Partners Creative, and uh, I literally dropped them an email and they said, "Yeah, come on in when you visit," and walked in off the street sat in the conference room, had a conversation, said I was moving here and kind of good chemistry. And then we kept in touch. And then I came back when we decided to buy a house. Um, I came back a second time when we had a more serious conversation and they offered me a job. So, I mean, talk about a weird soft landing. It was sort of like serendipity that they were right at a point where the agency was starting to, you know, blossom a bit and gear up and grow. They needed to bring in some more strategic talent. And it was just really serendipitous yeah and we can get into partners creative a little bit but i mean there's there's an organization that you know does wonderful work punches above its weight class in terms mm-hmm. of kind of the client book and uh, the i don't want to say necessarily the quality of the work but the scope of the work i mean the 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 markets that they're in or you're in um you know particularly that deloitte work seemed like you coming in the door it was great timing for both parties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they needed world-class talent to, to feed a world-class client base, and mm. you guys have been just rolling since. Yeah, growing really fast, and um, it, it it's actually a challenge because one of the things that we run into is most of the talent in the Missoula area yeah. are either, um, you know, not not remotely experienced or capable of doing the work we're kind of doing or their kids coming out of the university the last thing they want to do is spend another four or five years in missoula montana they want to go out and explore the world and go to you know new york and chicago so sure getting the right talent to do the kind of work we're doing is a really big challenge yeah there's not many other kevin's sort of deciding to move from (laughs) london or new york or wherever to to missoula well you know even bringing in some of the younger people we can train them and skill them up and give them a great experience but a lot of them, you know, they kind of want to spread their wings. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure, you know, I've, I've spoken to other employers in the area and they have the same problem, the same challenge. And you guys have hired, you know, a large number of our graduates. And mm-hmm. I know, uh, I think it's Lauren, Lauren Waite just, just sort of had a, had a stint with you guys, did great work, and now has moved on to a, an agency in Chicago, if, I, if, I, if I'm yes. correct. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that paints the picture of the problem is how do you, how do you get the right talent mix for the work that you guys need to do? Yeah. And, you know, I think we will probably get there maybe by bringing in talent, you know, people who want to return, people who are more like me. Sure. They've done their, I don't know, three, four, five years in one of the big markets and maybe they want to come back to Montana. So Mm -hmm. that's probably the best strategy for us. I would say so. I mean, particularly with all the the sort of economic development and... Yeah, you know, the emerging music scene, which we'll we'll talk about with you in a moment, and all the life all the lifestyle variables here mm-hmm. in this community. I mean, I think about it with the, the university sometimes and our enrollment challenges, and I wonder like how on earth are are we struggling? Like we have the fundamentals are all so strong here. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's a different conversation. I uh, think you know it, it is interesting though. You know, we were talking a little bit about. Um, having an agency here in, in Missoula, Montana and, and, and branding and the kind of work I do. And I think that one of the things we've realized in the past three or four years, you know, since I've been here and it's accelerated is that you don't have to be in one of those big markets anymore to be delivering work for those organizations. You know, technology now is so good with online meetings and that sort of thing. Yes, of course, we have to fly to New York and L.A. and meet with clients and do the face-to-face thing because that's premium and nothing beats that. But um, 
you know, we when I wrote the or worked with the team on writing the kind of vision for Partners Creative, we wanted to be an agency that was sought out by clients no matter where they were. And the idea there was, you know, not not kind of pigeonholing ourselves or feeling constrained by being in Missoula, Montana. And, you know, they say your vision should always be something you never quite achieve. Mm-hmm. Well, we've kind of achieved ours. Right. <laughs> so it's like maybe we weren't ambitious enough. But, um, you know, it's so much easier now to, you know, to work with clients who are all over the world. I'm doing work, you know, with a with client who's doing technology uh, implementations in EMEA, you know, Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and Asia, you know. So here in Missoula, Montana, we're helping a client sell cloud software in Singapore. Yeah, that technology piece is, is it's really transformed the type of enterprise that can exist here. I mean, you look at your Luminads, your Submittables, your ClassPath, all these technology-oriented firms are just, you know, they're able to locate mm-hmm. here, to find good talent here, and there's people that want to live here. Um, you know, one thing I, I, I think I've heard you and your colleague Sean talk about is, although that technology enables um, you know, that type of range for you guys, you still do have to, or in the past, have had to fight a little bit of the Montana brand, so to speak. Is yeah. that correct? I mean, you, you, yeah, without a Madison Avenue address, you're sort of... Yeah, I think less so than we used to, but okay. you're still you're still on a conference call and somebody says, "Oh, where are you guys based?" Right, and you say right. Missoula, and they're, "Oh," and there's this kind of there's a novelty effect. They, right? Well, there's a novelty and a slight silence, you know. Of like, <laughs> are these guys for real? Yeah, you know. So there's obviously some stereotypes or whatever that still exist, but I guess that can cut both ways, though. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. You know, it's easy oh, to exceed expectations. I can, I can tell you there are there are clients who are like, oh, guess we're going to do a workshop next summer, then, aren't we? Yeah, come here <laughs> for an onsite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about branding because you know, yeah, I I teach and do research on brands, but you're kind of you are a world class brand practitioner. You build brands, you help brands, you know, go from good to great, all those sorts of things. And I want to talk about kind of the where the rubber hits the road with brands. One thing I, I have a, a challenging time in the classroom is conveying, one, the holistic concept of what a brand is. And you touched on that earlier. Like it has to permeate the fabric of an organization. It's different than a mission. It's different than a vision. But it's, it, it's, it, for it really to function at a high level, it has to exist at all levels of the, brand, of the organization. The other thing, too, is when you see it done well, it kind of looks effortless mm-hmm. and easy. And that belies the, uh, the effort that goes in, and, you know, and the talent and the, the grinding process that goes into creating a successful mm-hmm. brand. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like what's, what's your kind of perspective on how great branding yeah. comes to life? Well, I think the, the key thing is that people – make the mistake of thinking that branding is something you do, you know, in the marketing department. And it's just about um, creating some guidelines and some visual identity elements and, and other, you know, messaging elements that right. just get then, a good graphic artist and a tagline. And that's yeah, all you need. right? Yeah, And then you got your rule book for running your ads or doing your sure. website and then, you know, dust your hands and the job is done. And to me, that's like a tiny bit, an important bit, but a tiny bit of what it actually ought to be. And, you know, what good branding and brand development should be is, you know, starting with what's our business model? You know, what are the markets we serve? Why are we serving them? What, you know, what do they need that we can provide better than anybody else can? Um, before you even think about anything like, you know, positioning sure. statements or anything like that. So you really have to think about where are we now as a company? What do we want to turn into? How are we going to get there? And secondly, looking at the internal aspect, you know, looking at the functional divisions within an organization, you know, all the different functions like HR and finance and marketing and operations, you know, all the, all the parts that make a company work, you've got to make sure that they all understand what that brand means, how it helps you deliver whatever that strategy is that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. And also understanding that, for most organizations, the people in the organization are going to play a huge role in achieving or delivering what that brand is promising. Right. You know, so again, it's not just, you know, the old lipstick on a pig branding exercise. It's actually saying, 
we're going to take everybody who works for this organization on a journey that is going to connect our vision as a company through to everything we do, you know, who, who, who we hire, who we promote, who we fire, what kind of markets we enter and don't enter, what kind of products and services and innovations we explore, you know. Then, of course, the traditional things that people think about branding, which is logo and website and, you know, marketing and all the kind of stuff that the stuff, that's a good word for it, sure. that, that people associate with brand. But, you know, that's kind of the, the last thing you worry about. You know, the first thing you worry about is, okay, do we have everybody on board? Is it really clear? Is this brand we are developing robust enough and smart enough to cater to all of these different internal constituencies, let alone all the external markets and stakeholders we need to interact with? So how's that work in terms of your your client relations aspect? I mean, what you're describing is a cultural mindset that kind of has to either exist a priori or you have to build it in an organization that you're partnering with. It doesn't occur to me that many organizations come to you with that ask, like, hey, we need you to transform our culture to believe in something that we don't really know exists yet. You know what I mean? Like, how do you get a client to the point where they're willing to buy into your message? It it. I'm going to give you the MBA answer. Oh, okay, yeah, nice. It, it depends. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> but, the academic answer. That's yeah. right. Um, but it does depend. So, for example, you know, you might have a client that says, we haven't revisited our vision and our mission and values sure. in a long time. In that's your years. opening, and, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great opening because, ah, you know, well, okay, now we can come in and kind of assess where you were, where you are, where you want to go. And, you know, that's a really nice opening. So any kind of a brand that has, for whatever reason, been neglected, that's always a good a good thing to do. Um, oftentimes, a new chief executive or a new marketing director m- wants to make their mark, mm-hmm. um, and that can be a, a good way to, to, to kind of get into it. Um, but you know, more often than not, honestly, it's it's a client who comes with a very particular business issue or a business need that they're trying to deal with from an advertising or marketing or or in some cases a branding perspective and. As you develop the understanding of that client and build that relationship, often you find that there's a kind of brand solution to their business problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, explain that. You know, so a client might might say, um, "Oh, we, you know, we we need you to run an advertising campaign for us or a PR campaign for us because we need to sell more of this stuff in a certain market," and what you quickly can identify is, well, it isn't necessarily a deliverable problem that they've got. It's actually they haven't thought through what they're saying, who they're saying it to, how they're saying it, how they differentiate it, all the basics of marketing, sure. which can kind of then lead you upstream. And I guess the other thing I'd say is often you um, you start with a small project and prove yourself. Yeah. And it's like, you know, catnip. Hey, that's you right. Know, we'll come back. To we'll that. come back to that. Planting a seed, you know, a little. Yeah, little, you plant uh, that seed, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, we want more of that." And you know, suddenly you go from a, a single little campaign to you know working on a bigger division, and then moving upstream that way. So, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but kind of. I think so. I mean, that's that's the tricky point of client relations, right? You kind of mm-hmm. have to gain a foothold, and then yeah. once you you get some proof of concept and relationship building to do, and then if you see an opportunity to sort of scope the work broader, yeah. Um, you got to earn that though. Well, well, yeah. And you know, it's kind of like, if you think like a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail with me. But, um, I think one of the things, and, and we talked about this before we started recording, but one of the things that I've been asked to start blogging about for, um, branding strategy insider, which is a, a blog, you know, and they have a, like a 50,000 subscription newsletter, um, they really liked what I had written in my book, you know, years and years ago, but they wanted to kind of reemphasize that because it still has a lot of relevance, but also take it to the next level. And to me, what's really interesting about brand management now is, you know, I think the market is kind of caught up with all that stuff I was talking about. Yeah. You know, everybody's now talking about design thinking and purpose-driven transformation. You know, that's all like everybody's doing it now. Yep. So my instant thought when that happens is, okay, well, where do we go next? Yeah, what's next? What's the new thing? And and I think, you know, the the new thing is actually in a world of data analytics, you know, automation, artificial intelligence, 
what are the implications for branding and brand management of all of that? And there's some people starting to kind of write and explore and talk about that. But I think that that is going to have probably more profound implications than a lot of us suspect. Um, and I think a lot of us coming up, you know, in the past 15 or 20 years in branding, because it's a relatively modern field, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) in a lot of ways, we have these like immutable beliefs, like, you know, you must have a very core brand essence as your DNA, and you must have, you know, a set of immutable messages and immutable colors and typefaces and typography that you do not violate because consistency ruthless consistency mm-hmm. is what builds great brands that's how i was trained that's what i espouse to people yeah, and there's and, traditional academic research to support that yeah um but yet not research necessarily grounded in this new era of being able to measure absolutely everything right. in multiple ways yeah and and the the idea then that we've been talking about back at the ranch is what if you are an organization and your data shows you that you're going to sell 25% more of your widgets if you use images that are primarily green and use a sans serif typeface and that, um, you know, don't use pictures of humans in your marketing materials. I'm right. just making that up. Yeah, but those are experiments that you can run rapidly yeah. and get results that yeah. are robust and yeah. Yeah, but your traditional brand manager will say no because our brand color is blue. Yeah. We use human, you know, emotive photography and we use these typefaces. So I'm I'm oversimplifying it. Yeah, but, but I, I don't think necessarily. I mean, I think Amazon and others are doing that stuff. I mean, they probably have stuff that's like in the vault, they won't touch as far as manipulations, but they're mm-hmm. constantly manipulating their page, the user yeah. experience, yeah. you know, the font size, all of those displays of yeah. information, which are core pieces of the brand experience. Yeah, and, and well, they're trying to optimize. And, and I think that Amazon's doing it as a kind of marketplace, you know, to drive increased sales. And and I'm I'm kind of thinking about it from a slightly different angle, which is like I don't know the GEs of the world, sure, or the IBMs, for example, you know. What if we find that I that for, I'm just making this up as I go? You know, what are the implications for IBM's brand if their own artificial intelligence starts telling them that there are things that they should be doing in terms of visual identity, in terms yeah. of messaging, in terms of channel presence, whatever it might be that goes against their brand? Yeah, their bedrock. Yeah, in a way. And and uh, you know, I think that that's going to be really interesting. And I think there's a concept that's been emerging called um, kind of liquid branding or fluid branding. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to hear and see a lot more of that, which is around the periphery of your brand, you're going to have to be a lot more flexible than you used to be. You know, when you're starting to de- define audiences of one, yeah, what does that mean for your marketing? You know, it's incredible. <laughs> you know, when you look at au- marketing automation and mm-hmm. the ability to actually target specific individuals and knowing what they're going to like and what they're going to respond to it really alters how you should think about brand management. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. Absolutely. I mean, that whole notion of audience of one, segment of one, I mean, it, it, it changes the game completely and yeah you would you would have to think it would it would sort of turn or at least potentially in, invalidate some of those bedrock assumptions that marketers have operated yeah. under for years well i think you know the best example i had is about four i guess four or five years ago i was at a um big event in in uh palm desert and i was asked to be a part of this um workshop and it was basically the big you know, Fortune 500 marketing CMOs uh-huh. and a bunch of upstart, you know, Silicon Valley tech marketers. And it was really amazing because the big guys were terrified of the small guys because they thought they were going to disrupt them out of existence. Yeah. And the small guys were terrified of the big guys because they think, well, you're just going to squash us. Sure. And it was really interesting. I can't name names, but, you know, one of these tech entrepreneur marketers said, well, why don't you you know, insert famous name of company, just, you know, why don't you just change your logo to green once in a while or change it to red once in a while and see what happens. 
And the CMO was like, it, it, it was like so outside any... Sacrilegious. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely not. Because then we're not, we're not defending our brand. Mm-hmm. We're not protecting our brand. And, you know, that was an early example of this conversation. But I, I actually, and at the time I thought, no, of course you'd never do that. You know, because I'm, you know, brand guy. So oh, I, yeah. yeah. And now I'm thinking, well, actually, you probably should do that. Maybe. At least run <laughs> experiments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, I mean, with this landscape changing or potentially changing, um, what advice would you have to students in the game right now that are that are interested in this concept of brand marketing? We have you know more and more students that are getting strong aptitude in, in mm-hmm. data science skills. Um, what pieces of advice would you have for them early in their careers? Um, I would say, and you know, kind of ironically, given what we just talked about. Understand your fundamentals, yeah. Because you kind of have to know your rules before you can break them. Mm-hmm. So you know, really understand what you know brand essence is, what brand positioning is. You know what what a value proposition and what different positioning statements you would create. You know, understand the building blocks of a brand, including a fundamental understanding of visual identity. That doesn't mean you have to be a designer, but you need to understand how imagery works, how typography works, how colors work, how layout on a page works. You know, how, you know, some fundamentals. So you at least have an idea when you're talking to one of the creatives or a designer, right? That you've got some grasp of that. So fundamentals, both visually and um, kind of structurally. Um, I think, you know, and I've had a portfolio career and that's made me a really good brander. I think don't think that branding is just about marketing. It comes back to what we talked mm-hmm. about at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Learn about HR. Learn about supply chain. Learn about finance. Learn about other parts of any kind of a business and how they all work. You know, it's one of the reasons that, ironically, I think auditors end up being really, really good business people. It's because earlier in their career, they go into the guts of a client company yeah. and figure out how it all works. They, right. You know, whether it's an FMCG company or a finance company, you know, these graduates coming in and getting ready for their CPA, if they go into auditing, it can be an incredibly good grounding for them to understand how business works. So I would I would say the same thing about if going into branding, figure out how business works, because you'll then understand what that brand needs to do for different people in different parts of the business. So that'd be my second piece of advice. Yeah, I, I relate to that in the sense that it's, it's a message I try to leave students with is... is you know, whatever level you are in a business, understand what how what you do contributes to an exchange with a customer happening. Mm-hmm. You know, what it can if you can draw a straight line or some sort some sort of dotted line from the function that you have in the organization to how it creates value for customers, you'll mm-hmm. have a better understanding of brand of what the organization is about and, and all those important factors. Yeah, and I guess if I had a third piece of advice, um, it would be learn how to ask really good and often stupid questions. And, you know, the more experience you get, the more kind of you forget that. And, you know, I I hit a a kind of a really interesting crossroads in my career when I was about 28 years old where I was really good, really smart, smartest guy in the room, but I was kind of struggling. And um, I got sent on this training, which was all about um, asking questions uh-huh. and being really good at asking questions. And it really transformed my career. I learned how to kind of apply this methodology of interrogation or questioning that, again, it wasn't just good for branding. It was good for life in general and business in general. But I think understand and have the confidence to ask questions is, is the third piece of advice I'd give. You know, Because I see so many students come in there. They don't want to show that they don't know what they're talking about, you know, because, you know, there's this sort of like, oh, I don't I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. You know, having the courage to ask is a really important skill. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's what happens so often, it happens in every all lines of work, but it happens very often in business is that you get intimidated that, you know, organizations create jargon mm-hmm. and TLAs. Yeah. Right? Three, yeah, letter, yeah. three yeah. letter acronyms to exclude people, to make you feel like you can't ask that stupid question or that a question is stupid when mm-hmm. really, if you have an instinct of asking a question, it's a sign that you know, some important piece of knowledge is missing in the yeah. equation. I think that's great advice. I do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I do it all the time. It's very disarming too. 
Because <laughs> yeah, no doubt somebody else has the same question exactly, or yeah. felt embarrassed to ask. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you ask with such poise. It's like, hey, cut through the bullshit and get right to it. Yeah. And and there's always, like you said, there's always that person, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Yeah. Because everybody in the room was nodding and, you know, oh, I understand what the TLA means. It's like, I'm sorry, what does that mean? Yeah. So It kind of called, I, I, I particularly enjoy calling out jargon. We could talk about that all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to shift gears, Kevin, and get into this side of your life that I really had no idea existed. I mean, we've known each other four or five years. We've worked closely on a couple of projects. I did. I knew you were passionate about music, but I did not know that you are a, you're a rock star in your own right. <laughs> and I recently have re-engaged and scratched that itch again with your, mm. with your band Catnip. And, and tell us about that part of your life and how it came back to life again. Yeah. So I, um, I've been in bands ever since I was in like college and um, mainly a bass player. And then I got fascinated by songwriting. And so there's always been this constant companion throughout my travel. So, I mean, I've, I've been really lucky. I played in, you know, some bands in, in Denver, in the Denver scene in the early nineties. Um, I played in a band in Australia. Um, and then I, you know, um, played in, I actually did, was in a Swedish folk band, which was quite funny. Swedish folk. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, which is so not way back kind of music. Right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and then in London, um, I, I was writing and I formed a band there and um, I think I was probably one of the last musicians on a planet on the planet to send out a, a demo to a blind ad and actually have that yield a record contract. For real? Yeah. So when the Melody Maker was still around, it's not anymore, but there was an ad there that said, you know, send your demo to this record company, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we like said, an ad in the classifieds. Yes. Basically yes. Send us your, yes. send us your dream. Yeah. And so we put together a demo and send it to him. And I mean, Never really thought much of it. And then the phone rang. And I mean, literally two weeks later, we were signed to some Bizarre Records, um, which is a really cool indie yeah. indie label. Um, you know, and it was a really amazing time, you know, to be in, a, in an assigned band and kind of shopping your, your, your wares around and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was pretty bruising in a lot of ways as well, because you kind of you, you think that you think that the getting the record contracts the end or the the goal and no it's, it's not the it's, beginning it's really, right it's the you're in the starting gate yeah you know so unfortunately that band um got really good critical reviews but we just could never translate it into commercial success which i know happens a lot and you know in hindsight it's because the band was a little bit weird frankly it was kind of surf goth was the genre surf goth i don't even know so yeah, i'm trying to imagine what yeah, that would sound so it's, like it's kind of like punk pop Rock with heavy guitars. Can you give us a sample and we could play it in the pod? Yeah. Because Surf Goth, I've been like, yeah, uh, like totally. It's like you Iron know, and Wine. That's a great name for a band, right? Right. Yeah. So we had a surf <laughs> guitar, you know, kind of inspired, very pulp fiction. Okay. Like, you know, Ventures, Lively Ones kind of yeah, yeah. sound, but with a lot of kind of crushed electronics. And we had a lot of fun. Like um, Brian James, who was the uh, in The Damned and mm-hmm. they did the first punk sing- single. New Rose, um, they, he produced one of our tracks, which is really cool. And, you know, I got to go to Abbey Road Studios. And so, I, you know, it was really fun. And um, basically, once that kind of wound down, I, I kind of did some solo work. And then it just kind of kind of ran out of ideas and ran out of energy well, and kind of retired. Basically. And you're doing this like as your professional, well, I shouldn't say professional, as your marketing career is taking off. Yeah, it was really strange. You're traveling all over the world, and it, 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 yeah. it was very strange times for sure. I um, how do you manage that? It was it was it. Yeah, it was hard. It was I kind of well. One of the ways I managed it was I created this alter ego. Okay. So my kind of stage name is this character called Henderson K. Shatner. Henderson K. Shatner. And so Henderson K. Shatner is like my my um, alter ego, gnome de plume, whatever you want to call it, but. That kind of gave me a little bit of a psychological separation between the two. So that yeah, that close one door, open another. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so that was fun. And I, I, keep, I I've, I've held on to that just because it's kind of part of my heritage, I guess. But, but yeah. So I'd sold off. I, I kept. I had a huge guitar collection in a studio. I sold off a lot of that. I kept the ones that I loved, sure. obviously. But, um, pretty much that you know that was it and it was all for sentimental reasons and then moved to montana and about a year after arriving here i kind of heard that little dog whistle again and i thought well okay maybe i'm gonna buy a little computer set you know digital yeah start recording your stuff 
yeah, and I was kind of, you know, just start figuring out how it works again. And I mean, there's this really, I, I, I say it a lot, you know, when I talk to people about it, but there's this moment where I'd kind of bought all the equipment and had everything set up, had my microphone and I just kind of sat there and looked at it and it looked at me for like a month, you know, and I just was terrified to turn it on and plug it in. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I was like, what if you don't have it anymore? You know, sure. you know, and so I started gently just working on some, you know, snippets and stuff. And it really funny that it just kind of snowballed. Um, you know, I sent demos to the guitar player I used to work with. He's in a great band. You have to check out called Thumper Monkey. L Thumper Monkey. No, Thumper Monkey. Thumper Monkey. Yeah. And, you know, he kind of said, well, these are good demos, but you're never going to forgive yourself if you use a drum machine and like MIDI instruments. Okay. So he said, if you're going to do it, do it. Yeah. And that was great advice because I got a drummer in and then I got a cello player from the Missoula Symphony. Then I got, you know, a sax player from a local band and I got high school students from the choir at Hellgate High School to come and do backing vocals. And they formed this group called the Catnipettes because yep. the band is called Catnip. Sure. Um, and it just kind of organically grew in, into this album. And it was, you know, and I was kind of inspired by David Bowie... Um, Ziggy Stardust and Paul McCartney's Ram album, which were both kind of contemporaneous, you know, 1971, 72. And I just kind of studied those records and thought, what what makes them interesting? What Why do they sound the way they do? And I, you know, not that I, you know, copied, but I just kind of used that as inspiration and came up with this album. So um, we're kind of building a band in reverse, you know, so it's yeah, like... Yeah, I suppose. And this album's just released, like, in the last few weeks. Uh, yeah, it came out about um, three, four weeks ago. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, so it's now an album and a group of songs looking for a band. So I'm trying to find ideally a guitar player or a bass player. But yeah, it's been fun. Amazing. And so, <laughs> what's the plan? Are you going to tour to support the record, or like what? What's your yeah, what's well, your schedule? Yeah, I kind of need a band first, and then um, yeah, go yeah, from I there. Suppose. You know, I can play acoustic. I did an acoustic show that went really well. Yeah, um, and the then, one at Shakespeare and Co. Yes, right? yes. Yeah, and so I'm, I can do a couple more of those, but I definitely want to get it get it going. You know, louder. <laughs> and um yeah so the other thing i'm doing is um there's a record i a solo record i recorded in london years ago but never really did anything with okay and so i'm rebranding that and i'm going to release that as our second record so um the second album is going to come out but it was actually refer, uh, recorded before the first oh, what's album. old is new again that's interesting. right interesting <laughs> I love that. I mean, you should write about this, Kevin, building a band in reverse or something mm. like this. And maybe like have an R in parentheses, building a brand right, in reverse right. or something. I can see some catchy book title. Well, you know, the other thing that's interesting about it is that starting a band and being in a band is really hard. But it's also really good training for um, getting along with people in a business environment. Heck yeah. Because think about it. You know, you, you all have your specialty. You all have a passion and you all need to have a shared vision to get where you want to go to. And people mm -hmm. disagree, you know, and you know that you need those people as much as they need you to make the music work. Yeah. And you're going to have to manage those egos and those personalities. And, you know, it's great training for um, as you work your way up an organization, actually. Well, and then you layer on successes and failures, mm -hmm. and those tend to push the limits of what those relationships can endure, mm -hmm. and the importance of those that skill set you're talking about of, of being able to manage those groups becomes even more important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a coach once in college, and I can't remember all the components, but he had this notion of you know a well-educated person he said well-educated man, and that was a little pejorative, but um, a well-educated person had to get a college degree, had to drive a taxi in New York City for a year, had to play in a band, and there was some other like mm -hmm. sort of silly thing, like had to listen to a Springsteen album or a Rolling Stones album or something sort of pithy like that. But I think there's some wisdom there. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's stuff you learn in college, stuff you learn at work, but there's also stuff you learn in your relationships, whether they're athletics or bands or artistic pursuits or mm -hmm. any kind of group dynamic teaches you stuff that is so valuable in the workspace. Yeah, and there's, there's actually a couple things that, that I was thinking about kind of related to that, which is, you know, I'm, I'm 
50 years old. So it's like, you know, how much of a music career do I have in front of me? But actually a lot because Leonard Cohen didn't really break till he was 50. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a guy named Rick Barker. He's got a really good podcast, um, MIB. I forget what it stands for. But he, he got Taylor Swift, her start. And I kind of listened to him once in a while. And Okay. He said the greatest thing about, you know, the more experienced musician. He said, you have what all those 17 and 18 year olds don't have. You've put in your 10,000 hours. Mm. He said, they don't have that. Right. You've been there. You've done that. You've got, you know, you've made the mistakes, you know. So he said, don't be afraid to use that. So I thought that was really cool advice um, for what it's worth. And then I think the other thing is, and I, I was just thinking about this as, as we were talking about both branding and music, is like, I'm always amazed by the power of cliche as both a good thing and a bad thing. You know, because like you said, effortless, you know, you see a company that's branding itself effortlessly. There's a confidence there that even when they go into the, what you might call a cliche, it kind of works. Yeah. And then other people try it and it just, it's like what a total cliche. And it's like the same thing with music. And it's probably the biggest battle creatively in branding and in music, which is you're inspired by things. You want things to sound and feel like what you like which often is like been done before yeah but you want to put your own spin on it and you know sometimes you look at something that you or somebody else has done and you're just like that is such a, that is such a cliche that is just so that's just awful uh-huh you know that's so derivative and then other times you listen to something and it's like that's such a cliche but man it's awesome I, it's just there's yeah a, a, I, I i see what you're saying and i sometimes i th- feel like and I, I encounter this more with with people and the people that i sort of feel like oh yeah that's so cliche and the other people i'm like you you are the cliche and yeah that's exactly. what makes you totally legit right and awesome yeah, yeah. totally you live yeah. it that's exactly what i mean it's yeah. like why is it that you look at one band and they've got like the long hair and the leather jackets and the low slung guitars and yeah you're like they totally own that they own the brand and then you see another one and you're like what a bunch of posers. Pretending to be the other guys. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I don't know. I, I, I've been thinking about cliche lately and like how in my prof- both of my professions, it, it's a, a, a barrier, a tool, and a trap. And, and maybe for some, <laughs> a destination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, Kevin, we should wind this thing down. I want to okay. be respectful of, of your time. Um as we close here, so one, thank you for just all the awesome collaboration. I mean, I, what I will mention in the introduction and we'll come back to is, you know, you've taught in our program, you've mentored our students, you, you now hire our students, and your relationship with the university is, is super special to me and to us. So thank you for that. Um, and thanks for coming in and sharing your story. And you've always been very supportive of the, the work I'm trying to do in this podcast. Where can people find out more about your professional work at Partners, but also Catnip and learn more about your musical work. Yeah, so the the easier one is probably Catnip, which is, um, see, it's Catnip with a Y. With a Y. So yeah, catnip.com, and then there's all kinds of other social media platforms, but you can get there from catnip.com. And then uh, professionally, probably LinkedIn would be the best thing to do. Sure, reach out. Yeah, Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well for folks to connect. Yeah, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Kevin Coy, thanks for coming on the pod. I really had fun. Thank you. Okay, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin as much as I did. And in fact, we're going to bring you a little bit of catnip on the outro for this uh, episode. So keep listening. You'll get a little sample of their recent album and the song Everything and Nothing. So stay tuned for that. And stay tuned for next week. Next week, we have Micah Larson communications scientist, persuasion scientist, the doer of all things over at APES Communication Science. Really enjoyed geeking out on the psychology of persuasion with Micah and excited to bring her to you next week. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. But you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkle, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, 
If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.